Florian Hoffmeister is a prolific director of photography. Recent works by Hoffmeister include his lensing on the Apple TV Plus series Pashinko, the critically acclaimed political thriller Official Secrets, starring Kira Knightley, Ralph Fiennes, and Matt Smith, and the forthcoming film Tar, starring Kate Blanchett. Hoffmeister is well known for his collaboration with Terence Davies on feature films The Deep Blue Sea, starring Rachel Weisz, Tom Hiddleston, and Simon Russell Beale, and A Quiet Passion, starring Cynthia Nixon and Jennifer L. His work on Brian Kirk's television phenomenon, Great Expectations, earned him further distinction, as well as numerous accolades, including a Primetime Emmy, a BAFTA, and an ASC Award. Florian Hofmeister, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So if we may begin with your journey, when did you realize you had a home in visual storytelling and which teachers and collaborators helped you hone your skills and find your voice? Oh, that's a good question. I, I mean, I went the film school route. You know, if I were to go back all the way, I grew up in a tiny village at the outskirts of a mid-sized German town in former West Germany. And friends and I, we somehow got interested in storytelling. So we funded this theater group. Lots of my friends later actually became actors and wanted to become actors. And we followed that actually quite ambitiously. So there was always, you know, a lot of my friends were also musicians. So the arts were always present in my youth. But supposedly, my friends always, you know, when they kind of want to wind me up, they say that I used to say the phrase, oh, I have seen this film. So supposedly, I was watching a lot. I can't remember that. I never felt very passionate about cinema. I just knew about the art, you know, like the performing arts. And I only played the classical guitar, whereas my, all my friends played the electric guitar. So I never really made it into a rock band. So after high school, I did a bit of traveling and somehow came back wanting to kind of focus on what to study or what to do. And by pure chance, I thought, oh, I want to follow this film idea. And I went to Berlin and got an internship at a film production in the lighting department. And I still remember it was a very small television production. And as an intern, you kind of made to carry things. So you ask. But then when you're into the process, you kind of realize what tools are needed so I took pride in anticipating what would be, you know, I wanted to be the one when the gaffer turned around to ask for a certain tool that I had in my hand already. And I still remember that in one of the moments I was sitting with the director and there was nobody to do the clapperboard. And they asked me, so do you want to quickly do the clapperboard? And I did the clapperboard, you know, and I sat down next to him, it was a very intimate scene. And he said to me, you must have done this before. And I said, no, no, this is my first film. So there was something that really deeply resonated with me and I fell so much in love with it. And then I applied to film school, which at that time in Berlin had the, one of the things they were asking for is actually that people wouldn't apply straight from high school. So there was a minimum age of 21. So I knew I had a bit of time. And before I applied, I actually spent another full year at a camera rental house, you know, where you get the gear. So to, because I thought if I wanted to make films, I should know more about the technology. And then I applied to film school and got accepted. And, you know, it, it was a straightforward course from there. You no, know, it's actually very interesting how you, t that extra bit of time that you knew that you really wanted it. Sometimes people are thrown in and maybe they don't know what to pay attention to, but it seems like you were really drawn to it you had your exposure to music and theater it seems like a great gradual blossoming 
It is true because I was actually, by the time I actually started, I was 24. So that's the, when I started studying. And I, I really enjoyed that. that you know, I, I, especially because all the, the traveling I did, I spent a year in America and South America just traveling by myself. It's just, you know, you have to somehow enrich and nurture yourself. And even though at the time when I was doing it, I sometimes felt like, oh God, all my friends know exactly what they want to do. And I somehow didn't fit on that into that uh, framework right away. I think it was, out of retrospect, it was perfect when it all came this way. And you speak about your connection with music because I do want to go into Pachinko because yeah. it's so beautifully married with the rhythms of the score. I had to watch things several times just to understand what I was seeing <laughs> with the logical eyes because it I think everyone has been so moved by this. Yeah, just, did that help you, that kind of musical training? Imagine? Uh, I think, I mean, we have to do, you know, give the, the series creator, the showrunner, full credit for the molding of all these elements. But I do think that in cinematography, you know, film is all about rhythm and timing. And especially when you set up shots. I mean, I wasn't aware of the score yet because at the time when we shot Pachinko, you know, those decisions would be brought on later in the course of post-production where I would of course not be present anymore. But when you operate a camera, which I did for 20 years, it's just, it is like a musical instrument in a way. It's a visual musical instrument. It's where it doesn't make sounds, but the way that you follow somebody or the way you pan. And I was collaborating on Pachinko. I was collaborating with a director called Koganada, who is uh, in his own legacy ever. Uh, a video essayist. That's how he started. And I knew his video essays. He did a very, very beautiful one about the neorealism, uh, about Ozu, of course, and about Kubrick. And I, those are very rhythmic pieces of condensed essay about neorealism, for example. And so when we collaborated, he's very much a director that comes from a very, you know, for lack of better words, for like from a formal understanding of filmmaking, that doesn't mean it's like formal as in terms of copying a form, but form is a way of thinking for him. So when we set up these shots, a lot of it was all about, do we want to cut or is this a sequence where there isn't any cuts? So if there isn't any cuts in there, there won't be, you have to put the rhythm and the timing to the shot whilst you execute it. And that's, I think, where the, that bridge is between music and filmmaking. When actually, when you don't cut and you have a sequence that will last for, you know, anywhere from 40 seconds to four minutes, if you want, or for 10 minutes, then it is all about the rhythm that you create live. Yes, and you feel it so deeply because I know that there are cuts, but I don't, often I find myself a little bit, and I know you're not entirely involved in the editing process, but it seems you're so aware of it as you're filming. I get anxious sometimes when I watch some contemporary film, you know, it makes me, but this yes. did not, it's flowed no, like water. I, I, that's true. And I mean, that was the absolute ambition. I'm really glad you're saying that because what is exciting about it is, of course, when you discuss things and, and you collaborate with a director or when with a team or with a Sue as a showrunner and you envision something that it resonates on the other side exactly how we uh, intended it to be is, of course, a very exciting moment. That It was exactly about that. I thought that, you know, when you read the scripts, they were so full of quite an complicated amount of information. So you had to compute these two storylines, 
taking place in different times. There's a lot of content about the life of Solomon with all his aspects of his work and the project and the house or, you know, the real estate in Tokyo. And so we felt that the camera should not mimic that in any form. It almost has to have an internal confidence that makes you as an audience not nervous that you miss something. You have to feel, you have to feel as if I miss something, it's all right because it's going to come back. You know, you, that's that confidence. That was the key, I think, for how we approach Pachinko visually. And then another thing that Koganad and I spoke about at length is, would you visually differentiate between the two timelines, the 20s and the 80s? And we both felt equally that we shouldn't. It should feel as if time is like not divided. You know, they will look different by the mise-en-scene and by the costume, of course, but the camera would not make an effort to distinguish between these times. So, because in essence, if you really think about it, all these times take place simultaneously in the head or heart of the main character in Sunja's head. Because as an old woman, she has had, this could all be her memory. And in a way it is, it could take place live in her head. So I thought it was always important to have that confidence and don't try, I kind of live in my own work by the, there's a, a phrase I picked up from a director many years ago who said, don't put a head on a head. And I think in visual storytelling, you know, one can, it's almost about losing, leaving that ambition that one has for oneself, trying to transcend the identity of the work, you know, trying to make what's right for the film. And sometimes that means not to do anything, you know. Well, they say, you know, that's the old line too of Lao Tzu, the master's hand must never show in the work. That's better put. But I think that what's so interesting to go back to the emotional themes and going through time, it's a conversation for those who haven't yet experienced Pashinko, yeah. the TV series or the book, which it was founded on, that it's in, in this new depiction, which of course changes the chronology from the novel, but there's like all these ripples. It mm, feels like very yeah. water, it ripples out yeah. forward and backward yeah. in time. And although, and you might put it differently, but it seems like every scene seems to ask the same question without it feeling repeated. For me, that's a, one question. I can tell you what it was for me, but did you find that there's just this beautiful echoing without repetition? Yes, no, that's true. I mean, I was, and that's a great, you know, to be taken as a great compliment. If I connected with a visual storytelling, that again is about picking your choice with what the camera needs to do. So we talked about the confidence. The other thing is we felt really strongly that the camera should depict a sense of space as opposed to time. Feel it time behind of us, you know, not thinking about it let the production design, the costume and the actors do that work. But we really wanted to root the piece in this form of, you know, identity of home. So that when Sunja actually goes into immigration and goes to Japan, that we as an audience, when she goes into the tiny little part of Osaka, I think it is, and she sits in this tiny house that you suddenly, you can almost feel how her body must receive this, new environment differently from where she started out, even though she was poor, but she lived on this island, you know, in this boarding house. So, so this identity of space, that was what the camera really wanted to depict. And going back to your question, those three elements, confidence, space, and, and not differentiation between time, that was the key 
for the cinematography personally. I was, of course, tremendously overwhelmed. I don't speak Korean. I'd never been to Asia longer than two weeks. I spent some time in Taiwan many years ago, but only a short time. So I always felt when I read the scripts, I felt, you know, it's a family saga. There's many parallels to you could probably find families in Germany that have been equally torn apart by the political and historical developments in Central Europe. So to me, first of all, I, I'm not Korean. And when I was reading the script, and actually when we were shooting it even more so, I had the feeling that apart from the dramatic structure and the family saga, there's probably a story that's universal that goes into diaspora. There was something else happening. And I felt that it was very much a conversation that a group of Koreans were having amongst themselves and with other Koreans about what it means to be Korean. And what I mean by that is like Suyu, I think she was still born in Korea, but I'm not 100% sure, but I think she was, but she grew up in the States. Koganada grew up in the States. Justin Sean, the director of the second block, also grew up in the States. So you have these people that, you know, have been brought up in, in this juxtaposition of their Korean identity, sometimes stronger, sometimes smaller, because, you know, some parents might have chosen not to really speak Korean with them so it's, they could assimilate in the American context. So the juxtaposition between their the cultural uh, heritage of their parents and their own identity. And I think this piece so much defines an acknowledgement of what it must have meant for their uh, generation of their grandparents to actually leave the place and for the hardship and what kind of privilege that created for them. And I think you can see that, you know, in Solomon and in, in the conversation he is having with Sunja, but you can you could also, it was palpable on set. It was, that was what, you know, and to me, the, if you reduce it to a single question, then that would be this the question. What does it mean to be Korean? Ah, that's beautiful. I saw another thing. For me, it seemed because of your lensing, it like, like for me, it felt like, each one was a lesson that, that life will have pain and struggle, but th there will always be moments of beauty. And it felt that way. Oh, no, no, that's beautiful. I mean, I can tell you one thing that resonates with me when you say that. So when I was at the first, when I read it for the first time, because I had worked with Suyu before on a show called The Terror. And so we knew each other and you know, we had a, a relationship established of trust and even though i don't expect people to necessarily come back with the next piece you know you sometimes hope but we were talking about the next project and she was sending me the scripts first as a as a colleague sort of saying not necessarily saying that she said just read it so i read it and i felt after the first two episodes i felt like man this is so specific am i really the right person to do this to photograph this and then there comes a, a scene in episode three where uh, Sunja, as a young woman, and for those who haven't seen it, she is pregnant from an older man that she is not married to. So that's pretty much, you know, sacrificing her life pretty much in those circumstances in the 20s in that village in Korea. And she comes across Isaac, who then is going to marry her, who is a guy, a, a priest who is a, a, on his journey to Japan. And he offers her to take her, to accept the fact that she's pregnant from another man and to marry her. And that scene was so amazingly written because I felt that there were these 21 year olds or 22, however they were, and they were negotiating 
an absolutely existentialist crisis and an existentialist decision for their lives with such grace and so adult, you know, that it's really hard to find that in films. That's a couple of people will sit down and really negotiate. This is what's going to happen. This is what I want you to do. This is what I can offer. And she says, I accept. And, you know, they went and she married him. And I felt that was very, very, very mature. And that was what really drew me in because then I thought, okay, uh, I just have to shoot this. <laughs> you know, because uh, in, in a way, one wishes you could live your own life like that at times, you know, being exposed to a moment of crisis and reacting with such grace or such understanding of the other, you know. And the other beautiful thing is, as you say, conversations across generations, and, and we all wonder about, you know, the conversations we couldn't have with our grandparents or, mm. or further down the line, and they just covered in silence, so mm. stoic. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I, that's, I can relate to that very much as a German, very, very much. That's basically how I grew up. You know, that's also what maybe connected me at times. To the because what I thought what the chance was when we finally talked about the practicalities of shooting this I thought okay what can I what I do I have to offer you know because in a way you come as a guest uh, to a party where everybody speaks Korean and I thought okay this would be my you know in an ideal world the entry point would be that I I can bring the gaze of somebody who is not part of that struggle but understands it and maybe help transport the story from a very specific point to a more universal point. So you observe the specificness of the village, you see the rise, you see, and, and but you become so comfortable in this visual atmosphere that after episode two, you just think about, oh, this could actually be me, or this could have been my grandmother, even though she's, we live in different cultural contexts. Oh, definitely. And I'm sure that there are people who watched it and weren't, not, you know, not speaking Korean, but were drawn in by the image and sound and just saw the words but also had this experience that you had mm. for much yeah. of the viewing experience yeah. no i'm convinced in my understanding of cinematography that's what you know what should happen you should help you know make people think and, and reflect and not purely bombard them with imagery you know I'm wondering, you know, going to some of your other works, I'm wondering, of course, you lens episodes of Great Expectations and thematically, not the same, but dealing with some thematic echoes from Pashinko. And I was wondering if you would have taken something away from that or completely different process. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a really good question because I, I have a, a very big weakness. That means I don't keep any files. I literally throw everything away. Uh, and that's a big mistake because in the digital area, I mean, you know, in preparation of a shoot we do shoot a lot of tests so of course you could generate footage that you could share with other people the next time the same question comes around you could say oh look at this you know that i, I tested this last time and i tend to and now i'm trying to break that habit but i i've tended to just once the thing is done i just you know just get rid of everything and that means every time i kind of start from scratch so every time I feel, okay, what do you need? What do I want? What does the director want? How do we collaborate? You know, what is generated during the collaboration? Uh, what ideas, questions come across? And then I can start constructing something like a look. But also, you know, it's like uh, with speaking a language, filmmaking is pretty much a language. So uh, the more you speak it, the more, you know, fluent you get. And 
Great Expectation is an interesting example because before I shot Great Expectations, I had shot a film called The Deep Blue Sea, directed by Terence Davies. And The Deep Blue Sea was a very important film for me because I had been educated in Germany. I spent a couple of years shooting here, art house films mostly. And then I had a chance to go to Britain with a British director called Antonia Bird, who was a very esteemed director. Unfortunately, she died a few years back. And she worked in television. So I got introduced at a very high and respected level to British television. And I shot British television for four or five years, which is very fast paced, high expectation of outcome, but also industrialized environment, you know, two cameras, very swift moving, a good place to learn. And then I came across Terence and we shot this film and the Deep Blue Sea was like almost going back to film school, not in the sense of, learning but in the sense of complete dedication Terence is a filmmaker that you know for him filmmaking is like going to church so he will shoot very very precise setups he will not just shoot himself into a scene everything you know he shoots little coverage and it's if he can't feel it he won't execute it so it can be 10 to 7 we have to go home at seven o'clock you have 10 more minutes to shoot in the television world you would try to get as much in as you could Terence, he'd say, sorry, can't. Let's start tomorrow again. So it was a very, very artistic, dedicated process that I had missed in those years where I was shooting very fast-paced television. Now, I'd done that film, and then I went back, BBC, Great Expectations, and I just lived through that experience with Terence. And that really redefine my own approach to this now again industrialized working environment i shot at single camera operated the camera myself and there was something that happened in the lighting i don't know why but it just i could feel that the experience with terence was still present in me whilst i was working in this completely different environment and maybe if you because you brought up music at the beginning you know if you think you were to record like I am, of course, a band musician as the cinematographer. But say I would step away and I would do a solo album with my own instrument. And then I would go back, having done the solo album, go back into the band or the orchestra. And suddenly I would feel the other elements of the filmmaking process, of the music process, to stick with the metaphor, more vibrantly. So something has changed. And then happened to me by working with Terence. And then by the time I got to Pachinko, you know, I've done, I did the terror, which was technically very, very, very complicated because it's all lit on a stage, even though it was meant to be the Arctic. So I had really accumulated and gathered a lot of experience. So it's all in my head somewhere. <laughs> Maybe another metaphor that might exemplify it better. If, you know, some people say that the personality is like a drum. So if you hit the surface of the drum, the entire drum resonates, even though you hit it only in one particular spot. So, of course, Pachinko was a very particular spot, but there was more to resonate. And I'm sure great expectations resonated as well. On that metaphor of music, you had mentioned before the Ozu style, that I guess it's a four by three formatting, which you've had a chance to use. I was wondering about the attributes of the 16 by nine or the four by three or the focus you can have with that. What I like about four by three is there is an element to the frame that you can see. You basically 
create the continuation of the frame because you know we will as an audience always i think related to our own viewing experience which is a lot wider i see the world not as a square i see it as some and maybe as anymore as a white screen my own field of view is far wider and i think when you start working in a square you also tell a story about the world that you don't see and you you almost become more aware because of that maybe you become more aware of a per, a person watching as opposed to the idea of generating and building a world that should feel real to me you know i only see it's like through a little keyhole i see the world through a keyhole to me that introduces uh, a form of fantasy of because i have to imagine how does it look to the right or to the left which i can't see coming back to pachinko we had to tell the story of the yokohama earthquake which of course is very hard to do in terms of the production efforts but also emotionally how much suffering do you want to show and i thought that the at the aspect ratio 4 by 3 really created a chance to be within this within with our character experiences and within his experience without having to open up the canvas and becoming too real to leave something you know to the imagination of the audience now you've taught me something about how i see because actually i'm a painter so i'm myopic so you said you see things 16 by 9 or anamorphic and i actually see it the 4 by 3 i find it very hard to do this you can but i always felt like oh there's going to be a blind spot so it just tells us that we each see differently i always yes. thought people yeah. couldn't see everything in it and this <laughs> the intimacy <laughs> hey i mean there is the thing that it's more painterly that's true because it feels more like a canvas or a square you know but i always get attracted to it by what i and also you know you tend to we try to design it in this way if you think of the the scene in pachinko where hans when is dead sit on the other side of the fence listening to the Japanese baseball game you know we just we had very little resources it was literally a fence couple of bicycles couple of people standing on them looking over the fence two people talking but you we wanted to create this feeling of this is a stadium this is a city you know and i think the framing the 4 by 3 really helps and i i know you have a forthcoming film i because we were on the theme of music and you didn't want to speak too much yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh yes you have this appreciation music and that i don't know if you can speak anything about it i'm just going to no, can, i can say you know i i shot of course I, I, it was an exciting year because after pachinko i came back and i had the great chance and privilege to work with Todd Field on his new film which is called Tar and it stars Kate Blanchett as a the conductor of a classical german orchestra and it just hasn't been released yet so i can't really say anything about it apart from the fact that uh, you know working with Todd is uh, he made a film called in the bedroom that was seminal for me i i just came out of film school and i watched it and it was uh, also a very invigorating film at the time for me because it really gave me strength for other projects that i was approaching and you know to have that life go full circle and suddenly he pops up in my periphery and i get sent the script and offered the film and to have a chance to be working with him was was a, a great privilege and it was of course very different from pachinko which you know is in essence a serial production that means that there will be certain decisions that you have to make that are always in relation to the nature of the the industrial nature of the project that means for example 
we had, because of COVID, we had one film crew that would shoot the entire time. And we would change it. Uh, sometimes it would be Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Koganada and myself. And then Thursday, Friday, Justin, Sean and Andy would come and direct their bit. So it is a very non-coherent way to make art, so to say. And that has sometimes very simple practical implications. Say it's Wednesday night and say we want to spend some more time shooting something because we had some problems and we need to do overtime. Now, suddenly you cannot do overtime because on Thursday morning, it's the other crew starts and they have to start at four o'clock in the morning because they need to shoot some sunrise. So you are not in full control of the economic and infrastructural setup of the project because there's always another team, you know, block two, Justin Chon and Andy Cheng that have to slot in. So it is there's almost an overtowering production where you are only a small part that really depends on your full artistic expression. They really depend on us doing this as if we shot there's no other film in the world. And we but at the same time there's constant economic decisions that are being made in relation to elements that are completely out of your control. So that's what I define industry. Now, when you then come back and shoot with Todd, who's the writer, director, and producer of the film, it's all different. It's all about trying to expand the freedom you have almost into the unlimited. You know, you can drive people mad, but you, it's all about dedicating yourself to the process and forgetting about any kind of economic or industrial obligation at all. So that was that. It's a great privilege in that sense. Hi, everyone. This is Yongling from China, and I'm now doing my master's degree of arts administration in Boston University. I found it interesting when Florian recalled the process he took to eventually find out his true passion and how he then realized it. And it wasn't an immediate decision making. For me, it also took me some time to build up my courage and follow where my heart leads. So I could really relate to the part in which he kept listening to his own heart and seized chances to make it happen. I do wish anyone who holds a dream inside would have the courage to do so to follow anything that make their hearts say. And from the side of a future arts administrator, it's interesting to hear him talking about how he collaborate with other people on a set. To have a glance at a spark of collision between art practitioners in particular. It's especially inspiring as I'm starting to think about as someone whose work is to help artists create. Where do I see myself in this process? And where do I place myself in this either? I'm still looking for an answer by far, but hearing more about such experiences definitely helps a lot. Now, without further ado, let's get back to the interview. Well, uh, now understanding a bit more of your working method, and we did have a chance, but we didn't speak about to, to interview Ante Cheng and also EJ Ko as well, but it just shows how seamless, it's kind of amazing how seamlessly it weaves together. Even so, at least there's just two main directors, whereas on some TV shows, it's like so many directors. Yes. And it's a good point to actually talk about this because I tend to do, I'm artistically only interested in doing the block one and the first episode, because that's the, the bit where a lot of imagining happens. How is this supposed to look? And then traditionally, in serial television, the following teams will basically copy that as a template. So I would never really do a block two 
of a series that this is just not uh, it's, it doesn't have to do with the ego it's more it's i enjoy creating a look and exposing myself to those questions i don't want to come into a room where somebody said these are the ingredients of the meal it's already there and you just throw it together that can have its own charm but it's not my it's just not where i'm i think good at so when it came to pachinko of course that is the structure but i thought and we spoke at length with uh, sue about it as well i thought that Koganada and Justin Sean are such different filmmakers and have such a strength in terms of their different expressions. It would have been insane to force these teams into or, or force Justin to copy what we did, partly because the story also takes off and she they immigrate to Japan. So there is a chance in treating things differently. Justin Chan is a, an actor, so his directorial style, I think, stems very much from the performance bit. So it was clear that he wouldn't have the formal approach that Koganada would have, that Koganada would win. And I think Sue really embraced that. And in terms of the block two cinematographer, I said to Andy, you know, you do what you feel you want to do. Of course, the camera, it shows some of the lenses. You know, we had a color grader that did a look and, and he had the same gaffer and the same crew. So there was a lot of continuation anyways, the same production designer, same costume designer. But they, for example, shot far more handheld. We never shot a single handheld shot. Their style was far more expressive and sometimes a bit more energetic than ours. And I think it's good for the season. I think audiences have matured. Why does everything have to look the same? You can take people on a journey and say, oh, by the way, no, it's going to go different. And it helps us get close to the characters as well. I, I yeah. felt watching it throughout that I am Sunju. I, I don't know. I felt like each one, I felt so close to them, even mm. though there's this formal distance, uh, imagining ourselves into their lives. Yeah, I think to me, you know, it always felt like that the first block would be, we would kind of build a kind of a runway. And then the second block takes the plane and takes off, so to say, you know. And you're very adept at the period dramas. And I know you have some elements of comedy, but what are you most drawn to as you look into the future? I mean, there is no coherence. So much is, is sometimes personal decisions about availability, about money. I have a family of four that tends to live off the money I make. So sometimes you have to take something. When I came to Britain, I always wanted to do period because... There's two other departments that really work hard in this, apart from the production department, which always has to work hard, that's costume and makeup. And especially in Britain, they have such a great tradition. And with period, it's a bit like, they say you can only shoot period if you have shot period. You know, so I always felt when I started out in British television, it was some years back where there were no streamers yet. So there was far less content and far more, specialized niche areas, you know, like people would shoot television or they would shoot cinema. And there was very little in interaction across these parts of the film industry. So I always wanted to do <laughs> a period, but I'd never done it. And then by chance, I got the job at Terence, which was a period film because it shot in the 1950s. And Terence Davis doesn't is not interested in if you had shot period before. That's not the... You know, he doesn't value or estimate your potential collaboration under those aspects. Absolutely not. And so I had suddenly done a period piece. And that enabled me to go back and shoot Great Expectation because I'd done period. And Great Expectation was fantastic because there was this beautiful makeup 
of Miss Havisham, which is Julian Anderson, and just the character, the creation of the costume and the makeup all together was perfect. So those, as a preference, are always beautiful to shoot. Now, the problem is, once you've shot period once or twice, you become like the DOP that shoots period. So I kept on shooting period and I got so tired of candlelight. And I was saying, I'm looking forward to photographing somebody who's on a mobile phone, please, you know. So, and that happened in the end, which was good. I did a little uh, whistleblower story called uh, Official Secrets. And then you've mentioned comedy, so I, I might as well position myself to it. Comedy is something that's very unforgiving for cinematographers. We're not regarded for good comedy. A good comedy is supposed to be funny, not necessarily look good. Most of them don't even look good. And it's a bit uh, of a dangerous field to venture into as a cinematographer. However, I always thought that a film like Tootsie, you know, is very worth revisiting. It's a fantastic comedy and it's beautifully shot, beautifully shot. And so I was very interested in... I had the chance once to photograph Johnny Depp in a comedy, which wasn't very successful. The comedy, so it's a film called Mordecai. And then I did work with Rowan Atkinson, you know, Mr. Bean on Johnny English. And there's one thing that I always felt interesting. For once, I had small children and I thought it was actually, they loved Johnny Depp. So they came to set. And it was, it's a good project to pick if you've got small children. But on an artistic level, Comedy is almost the flip side of a psycho thriller because it's all about timing. Because the humor is all about timing. And to be with somebody like, you know, Rowan, who is, he's a genius when it comes to physical comedy. And to see him construct an act, you know, like a number, so to say, with, with his hands, he could juggle something. And in, in Johnny English, there's a scene where he dresses up as a French waiter because he wants to steal a mobile phone off the table of a villain. And I still remember we set up the shot over the table and his hands would do the thing, you know, when a, in a very sophisticated restaurant, when the waiter comes in and lays out all their cutlery. And you heard like, of course, like four forks or seven knives. And then he would come in with his hands and he would rearrange these things like an overly ambitious waiter. And... That's how it starts. And it's not funny. And then he does it and he does it and he does it. And suddenly there's a rhythm that happens and you start to laugh. And that is a great, you know, that's his genius. And I really took the job because I wanted to be, I was thinking that's something interesting to be next to, to see somebody doing that. Yeah, that's my venture into comedy. I, don't, <laughs> I think I've done enough now. I won't do more. <laughs> well, yes, because the art. Can, yes, the question, where, where do I see myself? It's a good question. I think it's a complex time for cinematographers. The wave of content is, of course, something that everybody says, wow, there's so much good stuff. I absolutely share, you know, Martin Scorsese gave this interview, I think, at, the, at a film festival in Morocco. And he was saying when he started out, it was really hard to make something, but it was easy once it got, it got made to have it seen. Now it's the complete difference. It's relatively easy to make something because everybody wants to make something and there are so many production entities that need content and produce, but it's very, very hard to have it seen because people will actually not take notice. You know, it might just be at some corner of the internet and people will not realize it. Or it will. So I think it's a difficult time, partly because there's so much and also because a lot of what is out there 
just in terms of work and the way you have to dedicate your life to it is it's a lot of very long running so i was away to shoot pachinko i left germany in august and i came back in april next year with a break over christmas so the commitment you have to these things is is substantial it's not just a film you work for four months and then you can come back and you do another film you might go as well you almost dedicate yourself for almost a year to do things and that makes those decisions what where do you see yourself you know very complex because it's not about the film anymore it's like where how far is it from home how much money do i make how much time can i take off afterwards because i will get exhausted i shoot everything in a series you know will i split my work with somebody else there's so many elements in general i tend to base it on the script if that speaks to me in one form or another and then secondly the cast interesting actors like i said with rowan or as a physical comedy that was appealing to me or didn't really matter that much if the script was you know johnny english is not necessarily something that i always dreamed of doing and then thirdly the space the place where it shoots is there something in the visual scenery that will, will i expose myself to either culturally or visually that will speak to me the next project i'm going to do is i going to shoot and i can't really say what it is unfortunately but i'll go to iceland for eight months and and going to work there and that was one of the reasons why i thought i go is i want to spend some time there and jodie foster is the lead actress which is a you know fantastic chance to work with her so what you speak of if i may say it's also a spiritual experience a journey Absolutely. inwards yeah it is i found that's a personal question but maybe worth sharing because i know that sometimes people look at our profession so from the outside and we get to go to these places and relatively speaking to a lot of other people we make a lot of money when we work you know we then have to cope with the times in between where we don't make any money but it's there's a lot of privilege connected to it but you do give your life to something there's you know you, you can have hobbies because if i go to i can't join my whatever <laughs> karate club around the corner because i'll be gone for 8 months you know there's very little there's a lot of things you have to give up and i think it will benefit you if you start looking at it in a more uh, say spiritual for lack of better words but say in a more holistic way in which i say this is a path my life takes now and i i'll express myself creatively and professionally and I make a living by that but it's also if I cling to the life I have now I in in 3 months time I'll be very frustrated because it will be dark cold and there won't be no tomatoes <laughs> you know so I think I for many years when I was working I was doing it the other way around I was clinging I was taking it as an as a separation there was the job and there was the life and that doesn't really work when you work in film you have to say this is the life it's deeply personal i guess also what i meant is in the viewing your lensing it also feels this personal connection uh, and emotional and I, i felt a slightly spiritual appreciation this deep seeing this deep mm-hmm. noticing of the elements reverence for our ancestors i don't mean to put that all on you because i know it's a, a, a no, no, uh, you don't that's very and i would never claim uh any ownership for that but it is that is what you know i always felt it's interesting when we started at film school we were still i was fortunate enough to actually be at the i still trained on celluloid 
So our film school, we had the first two years were mandatory and everybody had to, we were, we were split up in groups of six and everybody had to make his own film. Everybody had to photograph another film. Everybody had to do sound on one film. So we were rotating, we were making six short films. And in preparation to that, at, at the first year, because those things always happen at the end of the year, we got one roll of 16 mil daylight material. And we had a little seminar about breaking down of blocking and photographing a scene. And of course, everybody at that point is so ambitious. You get given, you know, one roll of daylight material. So we shot little sequences and everybody acted in them as well. And then that footage was taken and that became... The, the material with which we learned how to do editing and then which we learned to do sound editing as well. So we made these tiny films. And I always found it interesting is when you set up a shot, you can photograph a thing or you can put yourself in relation to that thing. I personally, I can only do a relation. I envy every cinematographer who can objectify his frame and make something very shiny out of it. And you think, oh God, that looks amazing. And I can't, I have to engage. That's the only way I can do it. And it's interesting when you know these days, I don't operate the camera anymore. When you try to find operators, you know, I always tell them almost, I don't want to talk composition. I want to talk. I might even give them a note and say, don't think about the composition. Watch what the person is doing and react to it. So that's the core of my visual idea. I was wondering, is that a physicality or that you don't operate the camera or that you need to step back or you need to be working on the lighting or? It is out of pure, you know, there's different cinematographers that do it differently. There's a few. The most famous one is Roger Deakins, who never stopped operating. I stopped operating when I, or I made a conscious decision not to operate on that film with uh, Johnny Depp. Because there was, uh, I was working with a director who was just very much used to work in this American system where, you know, the DOP would be at his side. And um, a fantastic writer as well, David Kapp is his name. He actually came up with a line, don't put a head on the head. And I understood it. You know, I, I understood his point that he wanted me to be at his side and we would communicate with the operators, which we had a few, you know. So, and at that point, also what had happened technically is digital cinematography had come around and as a, it's a little geeky tech note, but of course we have the eyepiece of the camera through which we look. Now in a film camera, that eyepiece has a rotating mirror in front of it. So I truly look through the lens. In an electronic camera, it's a little monitor. And at the beginning of the development of these cameras, these little monitors, these eyepieces, like a broadcast camera, looked so horrible. So when I was lighting to my eye, and then I looked through the monitor, through the camera, the digital viewfinder, the lighting would look horrible. And I would just fall into despair. I couldn't even concentrate. It's just, this can't look this way. Of course it didn't. It's just the compression and the technical constraints of this little electronic eyepiece. So I felt like, you know, I almost wanted to, I wanted to stay truthful to my lighting and I had to see it. So I, just, I stepped away from the camera. And then in other contexts, when you shoot two or three cameras, I find it just easier to communicate directly with the operators. I have an, IP, an earpiece, a Bluetooth thing, so I talk to them over the radio, so to say, live. And I think I can deliver under these constraints like Pachinko 
in such industrial situations, I can deliver, I can stay more truthful to my lighting when I have other people operate. So once in a while, in 2019, I shot a romantic comedy uh, again, which I just did by myself. If the film is smaller, I might just do, I might go back to the old days. But So uh, in relation to film, I don't know if you get a chance to make film on film now. Yeah, I've been searched. I've been really wanting to. I mean, probably the film it taught was the closest I ever got again um, considering it because he loves celluloid as well and you know but it was just not practical you know it's in Europe it is you really have to choose your battles and because there's only one lab left which is in Belgium we shot in context where we needed the ability to shoot digitally because we had numerous cameras and sometimes we had a couple of days where we had five cameras and that would have been just madness to try and you have to send it all away it comes back, you know, a day and a half later. So you have to pick your, your projects where you can. What I try to do, and I might even go back to it even more consciously now, is some of the working methods that you pick up when you shoot celluloid is, of course, a form of discipline. You know, I still use my light meter. I still try to light first creatively and not look to the monitor so quickly you know just and I also try to to come up with a lighting that resonates with me emotionally and I what, what I mean by that is it's so easy these days these cameras are so good and you switch them on and you say oh this looks nice you know so I really try not to get pulled into this process too quickly because it's not about it looking nice you know what's that I mean everything looks nice even this image I think both our shots look actually quite nice. Lighting is good. The lighting should be, should have something else, you know. But those are the things that I learned while shooting celluloid. And I try to maintain that no matter what the camera actually is. Sometimes it just can get a bit, you know, there is something in digital that I miss the most. And that's the hardest to replicate is what happened when we shot celluloid is you would shoot, you would send it to the lab, you would come, especially when you did tests, you'd go into the lab a day later, and then you would sit there and you would watch it. So you had a lot of time passing, time in which you could think about your what you intended to, your expectation. And oftentimes that got reconfirmed, but oftentimes it didn't because something happened. And sometimes that what happened was actually better. And this kind of an, you know, the time that was allowed to dwell in that space, that's, that's gone almost because it's so quick. You know, you switch on the camera, you switch on the monitor. It looks good. Oh, can we go? You say, hold on. I haven't even started yet. I don't even know if we want this. Do we want this? Well, it looks good. Let's go. Let's shoot. You know, then it's, it is because the immediacy uh, is now so extreme, also in its technical abilities. You have an HDR monitor on set, you have a camera next to it, that this is proper. When we when we were shooting film, nobody knew exactly how the DOP and his light media knew, you know, and the eye knew, but you didn't have a, a technical proof. This now proves immediately, this looks good, let's go. You lose that extra coverage that you might yes. do and... I don't know if it, and people have told me, and I see it from the old films, that there's this beauty and there's this warmth, and those are the, the aesthetic aspects of it. But also, do you notice a difference in the performances, the, the way 
actors respond to film? Well, yeah, I think that, well, the technical difference, you know, I totally see him, but I would debate that. I would say, I'm sure you can find, we wouldn't like and look, watch all black and white films, but the lighting is outdated. That's not contemporary lighting anymore because the film stock gets fast. There's a whole different culture. You wouldn't maybe go with a backlight. So there is something, I think there's, there is the absolute, I think I find it too romantic to remember something that I got exposed to 20 years ago and say, this was the gold standard and now everything is going downhill from that. I think digital cameras are very capable and you can make beautiful films with them, you know. And also, uh, if you think of when Anthony Don Mental and Thomas Winterberg did Das Festen, you know, uh, I don't even know if it was shot on what camera it was. It was a cheap, I think it was DV or... It was a video. These guys were pushing in the uh, dogma times. They were pushing things digitally. They shot on small cameras. And then it's, it's interesting filmmaking. The performance bit, I think you can create. If you work with very good and very disciplined actors, it's up to us to say we need a rehearsal. Because that's the downside. People say, oh, when you had this thousand foot magazine running through, everybody was more switched on and it was more, you know, concentrated. Well, that's up to us. We set the tone on set. And uh, I can uh, ensure you when Todd Field works, there is an atmosphere of dedication and concentration on the set with Kate Blanchett. You said that there's, we could have shot this on 70 millimeter or on a mini DV. Would have made no difference. But discipline is there. The crucial bit for me is the time and the amount of people that are involved until you see the image, that you have this time to think, which you don't have anymore when it's digital because it gets turned around so quickly. So it actually, during the pandemic, you know, it is now technically possible to be in one part of the world, set up the camera and have people in LA watch it real time on HD. They see the same feed that I see. That is technically possible. That's crazy. You could have an executive producer sit in his living room or hopefully with the curtains closed, but maybe in his kitchen with the curtains wide open, looking onto a screen and he sees what I'm doing at the same time, 8,000 kilometers away. And that is, that's very confronting. It's interesting, the globalization of uh, art mm. in that way. So as you think of the future, you have children, you think about the importance of the arts, education, and the kind of world we're leaving the next generation. What would you like young people to know, preserve, and remember? So, oh, that's such a difficult, difficult thing. You know, I don't even know. I mean, with what has happened since February, I've been thinking a lot about this, you know, what world. My kids are 19 and 17. So they're almost grown up. And what world do we leave? I think, I do think that in one way, I think that generation is far more sophisticated if it comes to communication and dynamics amongst people, relation to other people. It feels to me, at least the kids that I see, they're exposed to all these things. You know, and first you think, oh, God, they can watch everything all the time and they will have nothing to dream of. But in essence, because they watch so much and they can watch so much, they also know that it's a flood. You know, it's not they don't have the same value to the image that I have. In a way, they know to them, I think some of the visual content they are exposed to is like radio. And I think that's a good thing because they will not be swept away by it. When I went to film school, there was these famous, I think it was Francis Ford Coppola who once said with a video technology, one day there will be the young Mozart comes off from Ohio 
you know, a young kid that makes a film. There was somebody, there's another famous filmmaker that said something like the, the films of the future will be more like diaries. Apart from all the horror that we currently see in the world, I am convinced that the future generation will even more so realize that relationship is the only way in which we can define our, our life in relation to others. And out of living relationships will come the solution for lots of the problems. And I am convinced that people will rediscover the medium of film to reflect uh, upon relationship, to transport an emotion that is unknown to people yet, to actually open the eyes to see what life can be as well. You know, that would be good. It all relates back to that underlying theme in Pachinko that there's pain, but there's beauty. And so you open our eyes to it. Thank you, Thorin Hofmeister, for helping us rediscover and bring us closer to the world for the tranquil drama of your lensing and inviting us into your visual storytelling, your compassionate camera work and telling important stories about families, memory and resilience. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you very much, Mia. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this podcast was Yaoglin Hao. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Heckenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.